good to be with you this evening. Uh, for those who do not know me, uh, my name is Bobby Caliendo. I am the Minister of Outreach and Evangelism here at Riverbend Community Church. And if you can think of the best job ever, I got it. I get to tell people about Jesus. What a great job, right? And so do you. You get to tell people about Christ. But as we open our time together this evening, I'd like to ask you a few open-ended questions. And it is this. Who are your heroes? And why are those people your heroes? Do you have Christian heroes? And what makes those particular men and women so heroic? You know, I thought about those couple of questions over the last few weeks, and I found that Christian heroes have two attributes that make them unique. One is that they live faithfully. Number two is that they live sacrificially. They have a sacrificial lifestyle. But as I'm thinking about heroic characteristics, I begin to wonder, do I live sacrificially? Or is living sacrificially something that's reserved for people or the, of the Bible? Or people who have a higher pay grade than me? What does it even mean to live sacrificially? So tonight I want to talk about something specific, one specific topic, and that is sacrificial living. What is it? Who's it for? How do I do it? And I want to look at sacrificial living specifically by studying Romans chapter, one, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles this evening, turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And again, tonight's goal is to answer the what, the why, the who, and the how of sacrificial living. So let's read together Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the NASB translation, and it says this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's a good word, right? Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and that you can give clarity to us on how we ought to live our lives, Lord. That you haven't left us alone in the dark, but you've given us light through the life and testimony of Christ, through the Spirit and through your word, Lord. And I pray for tonight, Lord, that I would be able to speak clearly the truths of Scripture. And that the people in this room, Lord, that they be willing to receive those truths, Lord. And as we're speaking about Scripture together tonight, Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And that this would be a special time of worship and learning together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we read and reread this particular verse, we see that there is something very fundamental and important. And it's a very important distinguishing mark of biblical Christianity. And it's this. The Christian life 
isn't about what you get, but it's about what you give. So much of what we hear in the world around us, it's always give me, give me, give me. I want more. I want something new from the church that I go to. I want a new truth. I want a new experience. I want a new Bible or a new leader or something. But we see in this verse and throughout the scriptures that the Christian life isn't so much about what we get, but what we give. We are to give all to Christ. Not bits, not pieces, but all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And look at this verse, verse 15, it's so important. And, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is the goal? What is the objective of our life? To live for Christ. To live as a holy sacrifice to the Lord. But what does that mean? Does that mean I have to be a reverse tither? Do you guys know what a reverse tither is? That's someone who gives away 90% of their income and lives off 10%. Should we do that? I don't know if you can. That's pretty great. Does that mean I need to be a missionary? Does living sacrificially mean I need to quit my job tomorrow and go to the mission field? What I'm going to say tonight is living sacrificially means this. It's offering our whole body to the Lord. And that includes the four H's. It means offering our head, our heart, our hands, and our habits to the Lord and sacrifice. That our thought life, my head, is centered around Christ. The affections of my heart are geared towards Christ. How I interact with people daily is centered on Christ. My continual habits are centered on Christ. That is sacrificial living. But um, what if the Christian life was about getting more? That would imply that Christ has not given us enough. And Lord, help us if that's true. Because the Bible tells us that all we need is found in Christ. Look at a couple of these verses together with me. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, We have been given every spiritual blessing found in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Every spiritual blessing that we need can be found in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Also, what else do we have in Christ? Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, We have been made complete in Jesus. What does it mean to be made complete? It means that when I place, when God saved me and caused me to place my faith in Jesus Christ, that he took away my unrighteousness and gave me his righteousness. Now I'm complete in Christ because through faith, I have the righteousness of Christ. So, so far in Christ, what do I have? I have every spiritual blessing. I am complete and also, I have everything I need for godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, God has given us everything pertaining to godliness. Do we have everything we need in Christ? We do. So the Christian life is not about what we get. It's about what we 
give. Thank you for the two people. Yes, it's what we give. Okay, so let's again, let's look back here at verse or Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice that Paul says this, I urge you. What Paul is doing here is he's giving them a firm calling. And the intent of this calling is to help them and to help them stay in Christ. Basically, what he's saying is saying, brothers, sisters, brethren, I love you. And I want to urge you to do something. And what does he want to urge them to do? What's the next part say? To present yourself as a living sacrifice. Ooh, that sounds like a big commitment, right? Who likes big commitment? And nobody raises their hand. It's a big commitment, right? But that's what it means to follow Christ. We see that he is worthy of our lives and we're willingly desiring to give him all because he is worthy. So what is, what is the motivation then to give our lives to Christ? And we can see it very clearly here. It says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. If you feel comfortable writing in your Bible, why don't you go ahead and circle the mercies of God? It's okay to write in your Bible a little bit. You won't be struck by lightning. And as you circle it, you can write above it, write our motivation. What is my motivation to serve Christ, the mercies of God? And if you study Romans chapters 1 through 11, you'll see throughout those chapters, the mercies of God are very plainly and clearly laid out. And there's numerous mercies of God. But notice it doesn't say the mercy of God, but the mercies, implying that there's more than one. So remember, the mercies of God are the motivation for you and I to offer our lives to the Lord as a holy sacrifice. Let's look at some of these motivations together. Or let's look at some of these mercies together. Mercy number one is his love. His love. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I get motivated just reading that verse. Do you? As a believer, let's read that again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing. So if you're a person in this room and your self-esteem is shifting, is shattering, is uneasy, guess what? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Amen? If you're a person in this room who is suffering from depression, if you're a lonely wife, if you're a struggling husband, a struggling teenager, a single person, a retiree, if you're in tribulation, distress, or being persecuted, guess what? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And all God's people said, amen. So what are the mercies of God that serve as motivation? Mercy number one is the love of God. Mercy number two any guesses? His grace. Grace. His grace. That's what I said, his grace. Romans 3.24 says this. For, um, excuse me. We have been justified. Another way of saying declared not guilty. We have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
If you have faith in Christ, you've been given a gift. And that gift is that your sins have been forgiven. Isn't that great news? So, so far I've only laid out two mercies. Are you motivated to offer yourself as a holy sacrifice to the Lord? I got a couple more to go. So, so far the love, the grace. Number three is eternal life. Romans 5.21 says, we have been given eternal life through Christ our Lord. Uh, I was at, actually, um, I did a funeral about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, it was kind of my first serious funeral. It was for my father who passed away. And it was difficult, but it was so reassuring and comforting to know that there's more to come. There's eternal life with our Creator forever. And so as we go through these challenging times of death, the scriptures remind us of a great mercy that around the corner, there is no more suffering. There is no sitting on the fence. Should I do this sin or should I not? It's no, it's all Jesus. And there's no more sin. There's no more pain and no more suffering. Is that a great mercy, brothers and sisters? Yes. What is another mercy of God? Is eternal life. Mercy number four, and this might be my favorite um, for reasons that some of you might know, but mercy number four is adoption, sonship. Through faith in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. And to me, adoption is cool for numerous reasons, but a couple of them is this. As you are adopted into God's family, know what you're given? A new identity and a new name. Our old name before faith in Christ is what? Rebel, outlaw, sinner. What is our new name as adopted children? Saints. What? If you called me a saint, I might pass out. But that is a new name that I have as an adopted son. Praise God for that, right? What is another great benefit of being adopted? Is that the old family no longer has a claim on you. The family of Satan can't get you anymore. You're secure because you've been adopted into God's family. Once you're in, there's no getting out. Check out John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. It says this, My sheep hear my verse, Excuse me, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and get this brothers and sisters and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Woo. Who likes to be protected by God, the author of the universe? This guy. Once you're in, you're in. I feel like I'm in the mafia when I say that. But you're in God's mafia. Once you're in, you're in. There's no getting out. Praise God, right? That sin's not going to get you out of there, right? Yes. Us people with Italian names like to make mafia jokes. Um, <laughs> that was totally random. So uh, that was free. All right. <laughs> that one was free. All right. Uh, num number three is what is so great about adoption is this is that we can relate to our heavenly Father in a personal and intimate way. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says this, for you, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I have a one-year-old at home, and he recently just started saying, Dada. 
you know, that's a pretty cool thing, right? It never gets old. We have four kids now, and even when the fourth one says it, it's still pretty awesome. But there's a sense of intimacy when they say that, right? Or if you're an aunt or an uncle and you're around your kids and you're playing together and you're throwing them on the couch, you're getting them. There's like intimacy, right, that a father and a son have together. That's the intimacy we get to have with God as adopted children. So what are the mercies of God that we've talked about so far? His love, his grace. Oh man, what was the third one? Eternal life. Can't forget about that one. Number four, we are sons adopted into God's family. And we could keep going, but I'm going to say one more. Is we also, one of the mercies of God that we have through Christ Jesus is that we have peace with God. Mm. Romans chapter five, verse one says this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we were enemies of God. There is separation between me and my creator. But through faith in Christ, we are reconciled. There is no more conflict between us anymore because all the conflict was poured out on his son, Christ. And now I can be in a relationship with him. I'm at peace with God. Oh, that's great news. So again, what are we talking about today? We're talking about being a living and holy sacrifice. But what is the motivation for such an awesome commitment? The motivations are the mercies of God. That's the engine that drives our obedience. And what are these mercies? God's love, his grace, his eternal life, our adoption and the peace that we have with God through Christ Jesus. And that's good stuff, right? So really what Paul is doing through chapters 1 through 11 in Romans and leading into chapter 12 is he's telling us this, that great biblical theology ought to drive great biblical obedience. Let me say that one more time. Great biblical theology ought to drive great biblical obedience. Because mm. we're all motivated by different things, right? As people of this world, are we motivated to get a bonus, to sell more stuff? Are we motivated to do well in basketball tournaments? My kids certainly are. They just want to win first place for bragging rights. There's all these different things that motivate us as people of this world. But as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, what motivates us? The mercies of God. And they ought to motivate us more than anything else. Amen? So your next question might be this. Wow, I'm all in. I want to give my life to Christ. But how do I do it? How do I offer myself as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to the Lord? Well, notice what it says here in verse, again in verse 1. It says this, to present your bodies, to make yourself available. And you notice here that this word present is reminiscent to words that we see in the Old Testament when offering an, a sacrifice. When people used to put sacrifices on the old altar in the Old Testament, they basically said, presented the sacrifice, here it is, Lord, and laid it on the altar. So if I want to live my life for Christ, what I need to do first and foremost is present myself to God. God, here I am. I know who you are, who I am, and I'm nothing without you. I want to make myself available. And this text right here often reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. Are you familiar with Isaiah chapter 6? What happens in Isaiah chapter 6 is this. Is Isaiah the prophet who lived roughly 700 years before Christ was taken up into the throne room of God. And he was in God's presence. There was smoke. There was angels. And guess how Isaiah responded? 
He cursed himself. He couldn't take it. I am before a holy God. What do I do? He fell to the floor trembling and scared. And after that encounter, God says this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. He says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And guess what Isaiah said? Here I am. Present me. Just as Isaiah received more revelation from God through that experience. You and I have received through God's illuminating of our eyes more information about God. We have received his mercies. And what is our natural response? Here I am, Lord. Use me. Help me to be available for your ministry. Amen? But that's pretty ambiguous. So let's get to some more details. It says this in the verse 12, verse, uh, verse 12, verse 1. It says, offer a living and holy sacrifice. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means that God doesn't want mm, second-rate offerings. Is God worthy of second-rate offerings? They try to do that in Malachi chapter 1, verse 8. They try to give them some or offer up some defected animal sacrifices. You know what the Bible calls that? Evil. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our holy, our, our behavior that is different and acceptable to him. He wants us to offer good behavior, loving behavior, sacrificial behavior. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Hmm. It's like my wife. She's awesome. And when I proposed to her, and to say, and some people do this, you know, everyone to each their own. But um, what if I went to a vending machine and got her one of those plastic little rings? How would that go over? Like, hey, I want to spend the rest of our life together. Here's like a 25 cent ring. For some people, it works. I know a couple that got married, he presented a ring pop to her and they thought it was cute and funny. That's great. But would that, would that usually be received very well? No? Probably wouldn't, right? And so in the same way, sometimes we feel like we can do that with God, the author of the universe who gave us all these mercies that we can just give him, eh, eh. But no, in light of what God has done for us and illuminating our eyes, we ought to desire to give him something more, something that is drastically different from the world around us, something that is holy and acceptable. Amen? Okay. And you'll see that, and it says acceptable to God. And we see a parallel verse to this phrase, acceptable to God, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says this. This is what Peter says. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Some of you are probably wondering, wait a second. I thought I'm already accepted by God through faith in Christ. Is it required that I offer anything else? No. Our faith is adequate. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But the question is, is my response to what Jesus did for me acceptable? I've been accepted through faith, but is my response something that I'm proud of? Does that make sense? So again, up to this point, we see at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, brethren, 
which is brothers and sisters in Christ. So who should offer themselves up as holy sacrifices? Everyone who has faith in Christ Jesus. Why should we do it? Because of the mercies of God. And what should we be giving? Holy and acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. But how do we do this even more practically? Again, earlier I alluded to offering my head, my heart, my hands, and my habits to the Lord. And as we're offering these aspects of our body to the Lord, it's important to remember that we're able to do these things. We're able to offer our bodies as a holy sacrifice to the Lord because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. We do not do it in our own strength. We do it because the Holy Spirit is prompting us, giving us the ability to do so. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. Ooh, that's good. Offering myself as a holy sacrifice isn't based on my own strength, but God equipping me, giving me the strength so that I can do something awesome for an awesome God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So grateful for that. So grateful that he's working in me and through me to offer myself as a holy sacrifice. But notice what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what are we to do? What is God calling us to do? What is Paul calling us to do? He's telling us to offer our thoughts, our mind to the Lord as an act of worship. And he gives us some clear instruction on how to do that. He says this, do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? It means this, do not be conformed to the patterns of thinking of this world. In your mind, do not follow a culture that does not follow God. Hold your thoughts captive by scripture and by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, not by what the world's doing. But sometimes that's easier said than done, is it not? Because there are a lot of patterns of thinking that the world offers us that sound pretty good at first glance, are they not? For example, I hear this a lot. This is a pattern of thinking that I think is prevalent in the world that we live in today. And this is this, pattern number one. Personal happiness is the chief end of life. The purpose of my life, the world says, is to squeeze out every second of happiness that I can squeeze out. Who's heard that? And you hear it a lot as people are going through perhaps divorce or tough times. They'll say, do whatever makes you happy. That's bad advice. So when I'm being transformed by my mind, I'm not conforming to that way of thinking. I'm saying, no, that's nonsense. The, the chief end of my life is not my momentary happiness. The chief end of my life is to glorify God in all that I do, even remaining committed in my marriage, being committed in how I raise my kids, being committed to being a dear brother and sister in Christ. What is another pattern of thinking that the world offers us? Image is everything. Image is everything. We're all, right, Facebook, that's what it tells us. What's the most important thing is how people perceive you. But really, what's the most important thing? How God perceives me. And through faith in Christ, God perceives me as a what? A son who he loves and cares for. 
What is another pattern of thinking that the world offers us? Is that everything is good in moderation. That sounds good for chocolate cake. But does that sound good for faith? Don't be too radical with your faith. Just a little bit of moderation. But is that true? God just said, offer all to serving me. Not a little bit, but all. Well, some people might say, well, why don't you do your religious thing on Sunday? Then you just be like a regular Joe Blow on Monday, right? No. As a Christian, our whole worldview is drastically changed by my relationship with God, how I interact with customers, how I interact with friends, how I interact with my wife and my kids. I am totally different. So is everything good in moderation? No. Can't get enough of God. More and more because of who he is and what he's done for us. What is another pattern of thinking that we are given in the world today is this. Religion needs to be politically correct. Heard that one? I remember I was at a lunch one time at a restaurant with my wife and her boss. And for some reason, we're talking about religion. You know how that goes. And he says something like this. Um, Anytime one religion tells another religion that they are wrong, then you are wrong. Heard that? Well, I, I like to try to say, turn the tables on them a little bit. And I'll say something like, kindly and lovingly. I was like, well, how's that really aligned with what Jesus said? Because your viewpoint is drastically different from Jesus's viewpoint. And what Jesus told us very clear, clearly and plainly is that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're angry with what I'm saying, please, dear friend, don't be angry with me, but be angry with Jesus. Do you want to be angry with Jesus? No, I don't think I want to be angry with Jesus. He's in, right? And so again, these are thinking, these things or these are patterns of worldly thinking that we hear. But as we offer our heads, our minds as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord, we're saying, no, we're throwing that away. One last pattern of thinking that we hear a lot from the world from around us is this, is follow your heart. What is the ultimate guide in decision-making? How you feel. That's why oh, I was going to make a joke about Hayward. Because, um, you know, when you're on uh, watching television and they're selling stuff, and they always make you feel like you really want to buy it, but you really shouldn't because you know. So what I'm trying to say is our decisions should not be based on how you feel in that moment. Correct? Because look at what uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked. And it tells us this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that our decision-making shouldn't really be based on how we feel, but our decision-making should be based on how we are filled by the Spirit. So, as a holy and acceptable sacrifice being offered to the Lord, I need to offer the way I think. And as I'm renewing my mind, I'm throwing away the worldly living that is being offered to me on a daily basis. And instead, what am I doing? I'm transforming my mind. There's another place in the Bible that talks about transformation. And we see it specifically in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. Are you familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration? So if you're not familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened is there's um, Peter, James, and John. They're walking up a mountain with Jesus. And this is what it says as they're walking up this mountain with Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, is this. And he was transformed before them. 
Jesus, an average looking person, was walking up a mountain with three of his closest friends. And all of a sudden something crazy happened. This is what happened. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Is that a radical transformation? So when the Bible here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, talks about transforming our mind, it's not so much of avoiding behaviors, but it's an ongoing transformation on how we think. And really the verb here is an ongoing, continual growth of transforming the way we think. Our thinking should be radically different because of our faith in Christ. Amen? shouldn't just be a little bit of different thinking, but it should be ongoingly, radically transforming. But how do we do this? It takes discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that we need to discipline our bodies, discipline the way we think. And here's some tips for disciplining the way you think and the way you operate and how you control your mind. Is number one, as we talked about earlier, reject the patterns of thinking that the world offers us. But number two is this. Focus on what you do know and what you oppose to what you don't know. How do I help transform my mind? Number one is I'm rejecting the patterns of thinking that the world offers. Number two is I'm focusing on what I do know. What do I know as a believer? I know the mercies of God. I know that he's loving. I know that he's gracious. I know he's given me eternal life. I know that I've been adopted and I know that I'm in his family forever. And number three, when it comes to renewing your mind, ask yourself, who is valuable? Is Christ valuable or is something else valuable? So renewing your mind is more than just right thinking. It is right valuing. If if Jesus is the most valuable thing in my life, I will align my affairs under that valuable treasure. And number four is this. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. How can I have proper thinking? Reject patterns of this world. Focus on what you do know, the mercies of God. Ask yourself who is valuable. Number four is preach the gospel to yourself daily. When doubts arise in your life, what should you do? Remember the promises of God. When desires arise, when you're feeling the temptation to be sinful, do not fall under the Esau complex. What I mean by the Esau complex, do not let your desires for your immediate need outweigh your thinking of Scripture. Don't live in the moment, live in the prism of who God is. Don't let your desires control your life. Preach the gospel to yourself. This momentary desire is not worth it. Jesus is way more valuable than this thing right here. When you start to worry, remember this, that you serve a holy and loving God. And he tells us this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, I've given some of this advice to people before on how to renew your mind, how to transform your mind, how to think about the mercies of God. And sometimes people will tell me this, well, that's just a lot of spiritual mumbo jumbo. That really doesn't help. Has anyone ever told you that? Yeah? Well, of one of probably many people in this life, I can testify that it is not spiritual mumbo-jumbo. 
I would even say in my own life over the last couple weeks or last couple months, and I don't really want a sympathy party, but just so I can relate to you in this, that I've had a lot of death in my family in the last three months. Our, and this is, it's going to start small, then it's going to get bigger. But our dog that we had for about 16 years before we had kids passed away. And that was sad for us. And then a few weeks later, my dad passed away. And then a couple of days ago, my, mom passed, my grandma passed away. And then a lot of other things are going on. And I felt like, and I was talking to Heather about this yesterday, is I feel like I was just becoming numb. You know, have you been there? Like you just got so much going on and you're just kind of going through the days feeling numb. It's a crappy, it's a stinky place to be, isn't it? But in that moment, I took my own advice. I took the biblical advice. I started remembering the mercies of God. There's more to come, brother and sister. A new body. Christ forever. I have everything I need in Christ, every spiritual blessing. He's given me the ability to transform my mind. My sins have been paid for in full. As you think and you contemplate those things in that moment, what happens to your continence if you truly and honestly believe those things? You're different. Can you testify to that? I know as a couple of days ago, I could testify to that. And it's not spiritual mumbo jumbo to walk through these. These are God's word and it works, folks. For the faithful, it works. His presence strengthens us. His truth strengthens us. It's not spiritual mumbo jumbo. It's where the rubber hits the road with our faith. Amen? And um, <laughs> on a lighter note, we renew our mind all the time without knowing it. When you go to work on Thursday and Friday, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? TGIF. Thank goodness it's Friday. Who, am I the only one who's ever thought that way? And what are you doing in that moment? You're renewing your mind. Because when you go to work, you're like, oh, another day at work. But when you think about Friday and tomorrow's Saturday, how do you feel? Better. What did you just do? You renewed your mind. What if you have a vacation planned for a month from now? And your life's not that good right now, but you know the vacation's coming. And you start thinking about it. Does your continence change? You know, today's pretty miserable, but guess what's coming? The Bahamas. No? What are you doing in that moment? You're transforming your mind. Or guys, <laughs> Guys, don't admit to this later, but I'll admit to you in front of everybody. When your wife asks you to go shopping, what is your initial reaction? <sighs> you pretend like you didn't hear it, right? But in that moment, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, what do you start doing? Renewing your mind. My bride is awesome. She sacrifices for me you know what, what the heck, I'm going to go shop and I'm going to try to have a good time. What did I do in that moment? Renewed your mind. And so we can do this on a grander, a larger scale. But instead of renewing our mind about Friday or vacations, we get to renew our mind about Christ, who's giving us all these abundant mercies. And it's not spiritual mumbo jumbo, it's reality, folks, brothers and sisters. Mm. 
So what can I do? Today we're talking about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. We offer our brains, our minds, our thoughts, but we also offer our hearts. Remember, head, heart, hands, and habits. You know, the greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord Jesus, love your Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if we, so our heart, our affections are to be towards God. But the key to this, and this is what John Piper says, and I think it's such a great point, is this. The key to praising Christ with your heart offering your heart, your affections to the Lord and heartfelt worship is prizing Christ. The key to praising Christ is prizing Christ. And once I prize Christ, I can offer him true heartfelt worship with all that I have. And we see this played out a little bit in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. You familiar with this parable that Jesus shared? This is what it says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What happens there? He finds a treasure. And with his mind, what's he thinking? Oh my goodness gracious, I have a treasure. Let me cover up everything and I'm going to go sell everything that I have and enjoy, I'm going to go buy that land. You see the head and the heart work together. Once our brain understands what we have, once God illuminates to us what we have in Christ, what happens, our affections and our hearts follow. So the more that I prize Christ, the more that I can praise him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that make sense? Mm. But some of you in this room might be asking yourselves, "Mm, I really want all of my heart to be devoted towards the Lord. But I think there could be moments in my life where other things are fighting for the affections of my heart. And if you're a person in this world, there are other things that want our affections things that are pulling on us to worship other things that are apart from God. So what can we do? How can we x-ray? How can we evaluate our hearts to see if something else is competing for our affections? Would you be interested in knowing how to do that? Let me give you some pointers. If you want to evaluate your heart and see if there's anything that you're worshiping apart from Christ, ask yourself these questions. Am I willing to sin to obtain something? Am I willing to sin to obtain something? Am I willing to sin to receive some gratification? Am I willing to sin in order to receive some more money? Am I willing to sin to obtain the approval of another person? If that's happening in your life, there could be a heart idol at play right here. Another question that you should ask yourself, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose something. If you think you're about to lose your job, are you willing to take the credit for someone else's work? That might mean that that job is more important than your love and affections towards the Lord because you're willing to sin to get something. 
Are you willing to sin to get more money? Are you willing to sin if someone threatens your comfortable lifestyle? If so, there might be other things in my heart that are competing for my affection. What's another question I can ask myself? Is there something I run to as a refuge instead of God? A lot of people, they run to television, friends, spouses, their job for things instead of God. So what can I do to evaluate my heart and make sure that it's fully devoted to the Lord because of who he is? I can ask myself some questions. Am I willing to sin to obtain something? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose something? Is there something I run to as a refuge instead of God? Mm, Those are good questions. So again, as people who understand the mercies of God, what can I do? I can make myself available to offer a holy and acceptable sacrifice to the Lord through how I think and through how I feel. But also you'll see that we can operate and we can, or we can worship the Lord through the way we live in the day-to-day with our hands. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, it talks about spiritual gifts. And as people who are offering our hearts and our lives to the Lord, there are things that the Lord wants us to do. The Lord has, has saved us for a purpose, to do something. The Lord wants us to do everything for him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's given us abilities and skills that are unique to you and to me. And he wants us to use our hands and our abilities as an act of worship towards him. If you have an amazing ability to plow a field, to use a computer, to be a firefighter. God wants you to use your job, your skill set to honor and glorify him. But look at down at verse of Romans chapter 12, verse 6. It says this. Are you there? Romans chapter 12, verse 6. It says this. Since we have gifts. Since we have gifts. What's that imply? That we have gifts. And then what happens in the next couple of verses, Paul lays out some gifts that believers have. It's not an all-encompassing list, but it's a list that help us discern perhaps what is my spiritual gift. And you can see in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, he lists some gifts. Here's some gifts that we are given to or that we receive from the Lord. Gift number one is proclaiming truths, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Again, what spiritual gifts are there? Serving, teaching, giving, exhortation. And one of you, one of, some of us might be thinking, well, those aren't my gifts. Therefore, I shouldn't do them. No, no, no. Even if you do not have the gift of teaching, it does not mean you should not teach. It does mean you probably should not be preaching <laughs> or teaching a Sunday school class, but it does not mean you should not be teaching your kids. If you don't have the gift of teaching, guess what? You still have to teach your kids. You still have to teach them about Christ. If your gift is not teaching, guess what? You still are called to make disciples. That means you're teaching somebody. You're teaching someone about Christ. 
So aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters, even if these aren't your particular gifts, we should do them because God is worthy of us teaching other people. But again, these are ways that you and I can use our hands to glorify God. But perhaps you are a little unsure on what your spiritual gift is. There's a couple of things that you can do. Number one is you can ask somebody close to you. Ask somebody. Hey, sweetheart, Bobby said I might have a spiritual gift. Do you think I have one? Great question to ask. Because who knows you better than the people that you're around all the time? They see your abilities. What if you don't know your spiritual gift? Ask somebody. Also pray about it. Lord, the Bible says that you've given me a gift. Help me to see it clearly so I can use it for your name's sake. Read through Romans chapter 12 like we just read. Ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Also read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So again, what do we want to do? We want to offer our bodies, our heads, our hearts, and our hands. But we also want to offer our habits to the Lord. And you'll notice in Romans chapter 12, if you could turn there with me together. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And what's happening in Romans chapter 12 verses, specifically Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 20, Paul is laying out some of the habits that you and I should be doing as Christians. The habits that you and I should be participating as people who understand the mercies of God. And I'd actually like to read it, all of it with you. And uh, so let's start together in verse 9. It says this, Let love... And again, these right here are our everyday habits as Christians, as people who are gripped by the love of God. This is our everyday habitual lifestyle. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and also practicing hospitality. A lot of habits in there, right? But as you love the Lord, as you grow in your affections towards Christ, these things become enjoyable for you to do like practicing hospitality. I want to focus on a couple of things right here. If you look at verse 9, it says this, abhor what is evil. Who uses abhor in their day-to-day vocabulary? Anybody? Roman, you do? I don't use that word that much. So I looked up abhor. I have a general understanding of what it means, but this is what it says in the dictionary. It says abhor means this, to have regard with extreme repugnance, to feel hatred or loathing for. So we are to abhor, we are to loathe evil as people who understand the mercies of God. But does that always happen? I feel like at times in our lives we become passive when it comes to evil. From the shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, to the activities that we participate in, we become passive, right? 
But as we grow in our love and our affections, as we prize Christ, what is to happen in our life, what is my new habit as someone who is transforming their mind is to abhor evil. That's what got Adam into trouble, right? As he became passive. Eh, there is a snake. Hmm. No, abhor it. Get it out of here. We should not be passive. We should not be complacent. We should hate the presence of evil in our life. Why? Because we prize Christ. But also look what it says in verse 13. It says this, practice hospitality. Literally what this means is pursuing the love of strangers. There's a seminar coming up actually um, in our next six-week seminars. It's actually on hospitality. I think the Giovannis are teaching it. That would be a great class to be a part of. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Wow. That's amazing. So as someone who's been gripped by the Lord, my habits are changing. I desire to hate evil. I want to be hospitable to other people. But if you go further to verse 18, just a few verses down, you'll see this. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So as someone who is offering their body as a living and holy sacrifice, I am called to be a peacemaker. I am called to make peace with those around me. For my in-law sister who's, we got conflict. No. Remember, God is a God of reconciliation. I want to be like Christ. I want to restore and reconcile relationships in my marriage, with my kids, with other people. I would say even in my own family alone, there's at least two parties, two different people that refuse to talk to other people in the family. They're on the shun list. Do you have shun lists on your family? I got two, right? The do not talk list. But as people who love the Lord, our goal is to make peace with other people, if at all possible, to reconcile relationships. And I think relationships suffer for a couple of reasons. And I would say primary three reasons. Well, reason number one, of course, is is sin, right? But reason number two is that there's a lack of confession in relationships. That people are very reluctant to say two very special words. I'm sorry. If we were to say sorry more, would there be a lot of peace in the world that we live in? Yes. But I do feel when I encounter other people and I counsel other people, I feel like even when they do say sorry, they do it incorrectly. So let me give you some tips on how to confess properly. When we confess and we're trying to make peace with other people, what do I do? I address all the parties involved. If I sin against my kids, I could say sorry to my kids, but I also say sorry to God. So when I sin, I offend the party, but I also sin before the Lord. I get to address both parties. And this is so important. When I confess and I'm working on as a person who has a transformed mind to make peace, what I have to do is this. Avoid rationalization. What that means is when I say sorry, I will not say words like this. 
if, maybe, or but. When you say sorry, you do not follow that with, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have done that. Because what are you doing? Rationalizing, right? Or you don't say, maybe I was wrong. Is that really confessing? No. Or, but I was tired. Uh, That's not really confessing, is it? It's just saying, I was justified in what I'm doing. So my point is this, brothers and sisters, as people who are offering our bodies to the Lord, one of the things that we can do is make peace with other people, as it says in verse 18. And one of the best things I can do to do that is to confess properly to other people. Take ownership for the sins that you've committed and say sorry on an ongoing basis. But element number two is truly forgive people. I have seen in my experience that when people say they forgive, they really don't forget about the incident. They bring it up again and again and again. Is that forgiveness? No. And they bring it up against that person again and again and again. Is there peace in that environment? No, no, okay. And also when you forgive somebody, you're choosing not to let that incident come between you and that person anymore. When I for- confess my sin before the Lord, does, that, does God still use that incident against me? No, he forgives me. And I have to forgive other people as Christ Jesus has forgiven me. And so this is what it also says in verse 10. It says, but be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. And I love this, verse 21. It says this, do not be overcome by evil, but be, o- but, excuse me, do not, over- do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a great habit for you and I to live by. So in closing, today, we talked about sacrificial living. Who's it for? It's for brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for everyone in this room. And how do I do it? I remember the mercies of God. That's my motivation to live a sacrificial lifestyle, is remember what God has done for me and through me. And how do I do this? I remember to value Christ. We can fully praise, or when we can fully praise Christ, excuse me, we fully praise Jesus when we fully prize Jesus. When he is our treasure, we praise him more and more. And lastly, how do I live sacrificially? I engage my head, my heart, my hands, and my habits for the Lord. So here, after 11 chapters of deep theological principles, we should live a lifestyle that points to our Savior who's at work in our lives. Amen? Hey, thank you so much for allowing me to talk to you tonight about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hopefully you have a better understanding about what it means to live sacrificially. And let us pray and then we'll be dismissed, okay? Thank you, Lord, so much for this great crowd here on a Wednesday night that's desiring to learn more about you. 
more about your scriptures, Lord. And thank you so much, Lord, that you strengthen us and you guide us and you protect us and you've given us the mercies of God. Help us, Lord, to leave this place telling other people about Christ. Help us, Lord, to abhor evil and live a lifestyle that is holy and acceptable, Lord. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Thank you, Lord, for the saving blood of Christ, Lord, and thank you for your word and all that you've done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.